0: Hi there. Thank you for choosing to listen to this sermon. We pray that God would use this as an added resource to benefit you in conjunction with you belonging to a local church near you. This sermon was preached at Central Baptist Church, Pretoria. 130 years of believers loving God, caring for one another, and impacting the world. Well, good evening, everyone. Uh, Pleasure to be with you this evening. Let me rush to thank your pastor, Mark, and the elders for extending uh, such a kind invitation for me to bring the word to you this evening. I've only been in South Africa now for, geez, 48 hours maybe. Uh, Sleep is not a thing lately, but uh, I have to say I'm loving it. And I kind of feel like, I hope you don't feel offended when I say this, I feel like you're kind of my people, all right? Like the two things that excite you in big ways seem to also excite me, sport and red meat, okay? This is where I live, you're my kind of people, I'm very happy to be here. But there's something else that I think we have in common, at least close, and I wonder what it is, it's the thing that you think is maybe hardest in the world, What do you think that thing is? Sometimes for me, personally, I feel like it's preaching, (laughs) so you're watching me attempt to do the thing I find to be hardest in the world, but I have plenty of things on my list. Uh, Waking up early, that's one. Eating vegetables, also not surprising, uh, granted what I told you a minute ago. Exercising with consistency, what's on your list? hardest things in the world. What was that? All of those things? All right. I got another friend up front. What I friend, I have up front. (laughs) Uh, But I would bet, I'm a, I can't gamble publicly as a preacher, but I would bet that you share at least one thing in your top 10 with me, and I bet I could name it. I would guess that waiting is probably on your top 10 list of hard things. And it seems to affect all kinds of people, both from the littlest, so we've got some young kids right here in the third row. Like, when it's four days before Christmas, guys, you are probably losing your minds. Like, oh, I can't wait. But how about the rest of us, right? Now, like, in an age of 5G, you can't wait for a YouTube video to load. We're like, come on, man. Right? Or when you're at a light that's just turned green... But the person in front of you is finishing up their text before they go. And you have to beep at them to go, waiting's not easy, is it? Especially in small things. But what about in big things, huh? Waiting gets harder then, doesn't it? Think about the parent in their waiting room while their child is in surgery. Think about the unemployed father looking for work. Or the the young woman hoping to be married or proposed to at some point. We have a lot of uh, women at that age here. Maybe you're waiting for that, and that can be a hard thing to wait for, can it? Waiting is hard. I think, I know maybe we're all Christians, we're not supposed to say this, waiting on God can be even harder. And I think that's been true even since before the days of 5G. Because, you know, we're going to see in this passage tonight, Isaiah 30, 31, Israel really struggled to wait on God too. They were God's chosen people, but they were like this small little nation, like in the middle of everybody who was way bigger and stronger, okay? They were the wimps of the day with the bullies all around them. But they had this great promise from God that said, hey, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to make you a great nation. Everything's going to be amazing. And then, like, Assyria is knocking on their door from the north, and Babylon's over there, and Egypt is down from the south, all of the world's superpowers of the day, and they're like, all right, God, like, any time now. Like, what's taking you so long? They struggled to wait for God. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Not just where you had to wait for the jerk in front of you at the red light, but you had to wait for God. How did you, you know, before we were too quick to bash Israel, how did you respond to that? How do I respond to that? It's hard, isn't it? Well, we're going to see in Isaiah 30 and 31 tonight, Israel gave up waiting on the Lord. They went another direction. The passage tonight then has a word for you and me, and I want to sum it up as simply as this. The Holy One is the only one worth waiting for. That that's, if you're going to walk out, if you're a note taker, if you're walking out tonight with one thing in your mind and heart that will hopefully change the way you live, it's just that. The Holy One is the only one worth waiting for. And I've titled the message, Wait for Me. Wait for me. Take a look at this first section here in chapter 30, verses 1 through 17. How do we know? Why is it that the Lord is the only one worth waiting on? This first 17 verses paints us with a picture of unwilling children. Unwilling children. It's familiar, for sure, but it's quite unflattering, isn't it? It's a picture of a stubborn people. And God gives us this picture right up at the front so that we know why we need to be reminded to listen to him. He kind of says, like, hey, you think you don't need to hear this? Just remember, like, you're a bunch of stubborn and unwilling children. I'm not talking to you specifically. Look at how he opens. The very first words out of God's mouth to his people are just that ah, stubborn children. But that's not the end of it. Jump down to eight and nine. He doubles down on it to say that they are a rebellious people, lying children children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. And Isaiah actually is supposed to like write this down so that they don't forget it. This is in the official records at this point that this is the status of this people. Well, could you imagine what they have done to receive such an indictment? I mean, if you had to guess right now, I'm guessing you'd probably think it was really bad, right? Rebellious, lying, unwilling children— Well, what is it? What did they do? Go back again to the beginning, verse 2. Or even the first half of verse 1. They carry out a plan, but not mine. They didn't seek direction from God. Instead of sending prayers up to Him in their time of distress, they sent a check, money, down to Egypt for their help. That is what the great sin was that got them labeled unwilling, rebellious children, and they were so stubborn about it that instead of waiting on the Lord, they went through great difficulty and ordeal to get this done. Do you see that weird little bit we heard in verses six and seven about like camels, like going through with fiery serpents and lions like, what the heck, what's going on here? It's just a picture of their caravan taking all their money down to Egypt to get help, and they're trying to paint it as like a really hard journey, for these people, it was easier to wander through the wilderness and the desert with lions and flying, fiery serpents, whatever that is, than to wait on God. That was what they preferred. Now, I know no one here has children who are unwilling to listen. I'm, just, you know, I'm sure you never were. For those of you who don't have kids, I'm sure you were never like that. But this, I'm sure will shock you. I was like an unwilling child. I did not listen very well. Still struggle with that. You can ask Mark. He already knows. But when I was getting lectures from my parents as a kid, I would sit there and I would hear their words, politely, quietly, you know, the thing you did. But I wasn't really listening. I was hearing for sure, but I wasn't listening. Now, kids, don't do that. It's not a great way to go. And you could understand if God would be frustrated by that, right? That's not what Israel did. Israel was far worse. Look again. We're down here now in verses 9 through 11. This rebellious people, children unwilling to hear. It's not just that they're hearing but not listening. They're even unwilling to hear. Do you see what they say there in verse 10? To the seers and to the prophets, they say, no, 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 no. Just be quiet, old man. I don't want to hear from you. Just shut up and go away. Could you imagine saying that to your dad? My butt would have been bloodied if I said that to my dad. That is how Israel is speaking to God's prophets who are bringing his word. Verse 15 we move down, we, we see the height of the tragedy. I mean, you can only imagine what word if, you know, I'm saying when I was a kid and I didn't want to listen to my dad, usually it was he was coming down on me for something. I was in trouble, again, unsurprising. And that was why I would tune out. So maybe that was why Israel was unwilling to listen, because it was a message that was just like really harsh. So we could understand like, oh, yeah, all right, Israel, like I get why you don't want to listen. But then you get to verse 15 and you're just like, wait, r- really? Look at what they were unwilling to listen to. Here's what God was trying to say to them. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling. The word that they were refusing was not a word of scolding, but a word of salvation, a word of rest and strength and safety. That was what they were turning down, which makes the tragedy of their unwillingness to listen so much greater. Because, like, look at what you're missing out on. How could you turn down this offer? It's a really tragic picture of a child who just won't listen. They won't be helped. Now, I know we're all at church this evening, and to some extent, some of you are at least listening to this sermon. Yeah, I only got a few laughs, so that means not many. And if that's the case, we're probably thinking, this, this can't be us, because we're here listening to the Word. We're not telling, we're not, at least not yet, yelling at Kevin to shut up and go away. So this They're not talking about us, people who are unwilling to listen. There's there's no way. But I wonder, is it possible that even the best Christian in this room sometimes only hears God's word but actually doesn't listen? Is that remotely possible for any of us? If you're like me, that can be true. I'm guessing, well... I'm not an expert in South African culture. Again, 48 hours. I'm guessing you don't have camels whereby you're sending money places. Just a guess. But I wonder, even if it looks different, if you might be guilty and I might be guilty of the same kind of pragmatism that Israel did. The same kind of, hey, I'm going to help myself instead of waiting for God to help me kind of thing. Well, let me just try a few things on for size. When trouble comes, when you're stressed about something or concerned or you've got a problem, what's your first move? What's what's the very first thing you do when that comes? Are you immediately like trying to fix it, trying to strategize, like, oh, I got it yet. Or, oh, I know someone I can call. They will help me with this problem. It's not what you know, it's who you know after all. That's what Israel did. They actually just, their first response was boom, I'm going to Egypt. They're going to help me because it's who you know. And that's what they got called out for back in verse 2. They did not ask for the Lord's direction. So you want a really quick, clear application point. What do you do when trial comes? Hard things, what does it look like to wait on the Lord? Make prayer your first step. Just God, would you guide me? Would you give me wisdom? That's a great way to start each morning. Your feet hit the floor, boom. God, would you direct my day today? I'm gonna wait on you. Do you go to bed at night? God, thanks for directing my day. Would you do it again tomorrow? As simple as I can get it, that's one way to not be an unwilling child. When was the last time you let yourself get in a place you actually had to wait on the Lord because you didn't rush for help somewhere else? That is an uncomfortable place. But it's right in that place that God calls us to trust him and where he'll meet us he's a gracious God, as we're about to see. But we'll miss out on him if we continue to grow down instead of growing up, but if we grow down with a spiritual deafness caused by uninformed activity where we're just casting God to the side and going at it ourselves. Look at what we see here now in verse 18 to 33. Not only is like God the holy one, the only one worth waiting on, because, like, we're unwilling. We need to remember why we need to listen to him. But look how gracious he is in these verses in 18 to 33. The section heightens the tragedy of anyone who's unwilling to listen and wait on him. Look at his disposition in verse 18. I mean, you might have expected God's response to be something like, well, Israel, you made your bed. Now you got to lie in it. He might feel like a little ticked off after being jilted by the people, you know, that he saved like a zillion times and they keep turning against him and not trusting him. You might think he would finally like have it and be like, all right, forget you guys. But what do we read when we get to verse 18? This is the surprise of the whole text. He's waiting to be gracious to them. He, he puts himself in a posture by which he can show them mercy. He's at waiting to show, mercy, to show grace and mercy to them, like, like a really good attending physician who stands at your bedside monitoring your pulse, your respiration, your blood pressure, all these things, just like, all right, what can I do for my patient? That's how God is with his people. And yet we are like unwilling children look down again. At the, we don't even get out of that verse again to see what else we're missing with our gracious God. He promises blessing for all those who wait on the Lord. Now, we've used that kind of language a fair bit already, and we're like, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? We're like, At the most basic level, it has to be the opposite of what Israel did, <laughs> helping yourself rather than allowing God to help you. Not Trusting in His good promises to do what He said He would do on our behalf. A simple expression of that is to act in pr- to go to God in prayer for help. It's a kind of dependence, an expectancy that we think, God, I will wait for You to get this done because You've said You would, and so I don't feel the need to go on ahead without You. God says, "Wait for Me. I am gracious." Mm-hmm. So, not only should we pray for direction, we ask Him for His help. Those who wait for Him say, "God, not do I need Your wisdom and direction. I just I need Your help right now. This is a really hard thing. Oh, what peace we often forfeit! What needless burdens we bear, pains we bear. I knew I knew it needed to be one syllable. I just forgot it. All because we do not carry everything to God in." prayer. Waiting on the Lord looks an awful lot like praying and sitting tight. Now, if you're like most Americans I hang out with, especially my dad would say this, you think this is too passive. You think like, alright, like I'm just not into all that like spiritual mumbo jumbo, like and you would say this to me. You ready? God helps those who... Okay, great. So you're very American. I told you, we are like we're one of the same cloth, okay? And like, is that true? Like, kinda? Like, should you be like totally inactive and do nothing with your life? Like, no. But I wonder if the very fact that that saying exists on both sides of the world, what does that tell us about human nature? Is our tendency more to wait for God to help us or is our tendency to help ourselves? And my concern for people like us is that we might be so willing to help ourselves that we never let God help us. We refuse to wait on the Lord because we'd rather work for ourselves. All who wait are blessed. What is that blessing? Well, we heard it, read. There's three kinds of blessings that show up here. And it paints, I think, one of the best pictures of the perfect life you could ever want for. Listen, look at it. There are in 19 to 22. You get a promise of God's presence with you, that he is gracious to you, that you see your teacher, that he hears your prayer and you hear his word giving you direction right away. Down in 23 through 26, it's a promise of plenty the hills are running with brooks and the ox are eating on the fields with like amazing abundance. You get down to 27 and 33, you get his power where by which he is providing a feast for his people while at the same time dispensing fury on our enemies. You want to know why he's the only one worth waiting for? Is because you can sing while he strikes down those who are after you holy one is the only one worth waiting for. He offers you this kind of grace and blessing. Who else could bless you this way? Who can offer you life of such close communion with God, abundance from God, and protection by God? There's no one. Even if you're like first time at church in your entire life, doesn't this sound appealing to you? Like you think, like, hey, like, I might want to get in on that. You should. (laughs) Wait for the Lord. Talk to a friend. They'll help you figure out more what that means. But man, doesn't this make you want to wait for the Lord if this is what He offers those who wait for Him? It does me. But what are the alternatives? What are the alternatives? Because... Yeah, and you're learning an awful lot about me in these 30 minutes tonight. I'm also a pretty skeptical, cynical person. So before I lock into something, I'm like, well, what, am, what are my other options? I, I need to see all of the coffee choices before I hone in on one, right? I want to pick the best one. Well, what we see then in 31, 1 through 9 is Isaiah anticipating people like me and showing us that the alternatives are worthless compared to God. Uh, we get a hint right at the beginning, by the way. Here, again, if you're new to the, reading the Bible, the word woe, not a good word. The next part of the passage, probably not a great thing, okay? Woe to those who go down to help for Egypt. And he just goes on to show like, look it, you're going to be in misery for chasing these jerks in Egypt, you, you think like a horse is strong and there's a lot of chariots and stuff. He's like, but guess what? They're just people and they're going to die. They're going to wilt like the grass that is gone tomorrow. This vapor that you think of strength in Egypt cannot give you the victory that you hope for. But oh, God can. God can. And soon, very soon, these Egyptians that you're leaning on so strongly are going to fall. And when they do, so will Israel. Friends, whatever we're putting our trust in or seeking out for help, money, personal wit, charm, uh, medical uh, technology, I mean, you name it, personal relationships, inheritance, real estate-like endowments. I don't know. I'm going after a million things that for college students probably aren't much of a thing. Whatever those things are, not only will they one day fall, but if you're leaning on them, you will go down too. But that is so contrasted with God's ability. I love this picture, especially being in South Africa. God's like a lion who has just taken prey. And I'm not a lion expert, but I know, pretty sure, that when a lion kills something to eat it, you will not scare him away from it. He just compares like these other nations to like the shepherd boys coming out like waving their sticks and yelling at a lion who's taken down a zebra or a gazelle. The lion ain't going anywhere. He's not scared of you. That's like what God is for his people. He will not leave his people. No matter who's yelling, shouting, trying to scare him away. He's committed to it. He's there. He will protect his people. And if that's the case, and we've considered all these worthless alternatives, and we've been unwilling children to a God who is so gracious and who offers us so much blessing, what ought the response be? Well, it's right there in verse 6. I love how Mark read it before. It's a prayer of repentance. It's a prayer where we actually renounce the things that we've been after and we turn to the one who has so graciously offered himself to us. We turn to the Holy One. Now, I know when you walk out tonight, uh, it's still not going to be easy to wait. I hope it's a little easier, but it's not going to be easy to wait when you're facing uncertainty at school you're looking for work, when financial problems arise, and you're dealing with a difficult relationship, things where you're tempted to just jump in and do something, try to save ourselves instead of waiting on God. But it can also be how we treat our sin, can't it? Like, I, I don't know about you, I've sinned before. And we can struggle to wait on God to deal with our sin, right? We think actually we've got to deal with this. I, I, I've just got to get to church more now. I've got, I got to go to more prayer meetings. I've got to memorize more Bible. I've got to give more. I've got to, you know, go work in the Sunday school where all the unwilling children are who won't listen. I've got to do all these things to try to make God happy with me and deal with my sin That's not waiting on God to deal with our sin. It's, again, we're trying to save ourselves. And I think it indicates, whether it's in those kind of personal situations or our own individual sin situation, that we think that we are more willing and more able to save than God is. That's what we're saying if we're trying to save ourselves. God can't or he won't. But that's not where God leaves us. God's word says that no matter what those good things are, they're really just a worthless alternative, especially when it comes to dealing with sin. What we need is something true, something substantive, something real. And that came. You don't know how sin was dealt with? instead of just the shadows and copies of things that were used to deal with sin for centuries, finally sin was dealt with on a hill called Calvary. When Jesus, the very Son of God, died to take the penalty for sin for unwilling children as an expression of God's grace to his people. And he rose again to show that he can conquer any enemy And he waits now to return, to be eager to show grace to his people. And I'm not sure if you want to turn there or not, but Hebrews 9.28 says that he came once to deal with sin, decisively, once and for all, and that when he comes again, he doesn't need to deal with sin. But what will he do? He will save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So if you can trust in God, who is gracious enough to forgive the sin of unwilling children by sending his own son to die on that tree, can't we wait on him to eagerly save us going forward? And can't you wait on him to deal with any of the other problems you've got going on right now? What what more proof could you want that he will bless those who wait on him, that that he's worth waiting for? Four. Let me close with a story that encourages me in waiting. And I hope it will encourage you. Uh, it was 497 days. Really, it's like a year and a half, if my math is right. After they had last touched land, and the crew of the Endurance stumbled upon shore on Georgia Island, down by Antarctica. Uh, their ship had sunk. They had been wandering across ice for all this time, and they had almost no hope of rescue. But their captain, Ernest Shackleton, got in a boat with five of his mates. And when I say boat, that might be overstating it. This thing was like a dinghy. It was their life raft that they had dragged across the ice, It's all beat up, it's small, and they're about to sail for help across one of the most treacherous seas in the world in the South Atlantic with winds and waves and all that stuff in a tiny little lifeboat. They had it pretty rough. They were going to get help. But the 22 other men sat on the shore and watched them sail away. Who had it harder? The ones who went to get help or the ones who had to sit and wait. But every morning the officer in charge of those who were stuck behind on the island would get up and rouse the men and he would give this command, "Lash up and stow. The boss may come today." Day 1. Day 10. "Lash up and stow. The boss may he may come today." day 100, lash up and stow, and so on for 128 days until they saw a much bigger ship come back over the horizon to save them. Friends, not one of those men was lost. They were all saved. And what I'm trying to tell you is that we have a far greater captain than Ernest Shackleton. He did not have to navigate the South Atlantic in a dinghy, but he navigated the cross and death and rose again. How much more is he able to save you and me? And thus, how much more ought we to eagerly wait for him? Lash up and stow, friends. Wait on the Lord. Be ready for him. He may come yet today. He's demonstrated that even though we are unwilling children, He is a gracious God. There is no alternative to the one who can help you like He can. I'm telling you, the Holy One, He's the only one worth waiting for. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask that you would help me and my brothers and sisters in Christ and friends here this evening to wait for you that we would be so convinced of your graciousness, of your goodness shown to us in Jesus Christ, that we would forsake all alternatives and come to you. Help us, we pray in the name of your Son. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. Find out more about Central Baptist Church at www.central.org.za.